You're listening to a recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.sdrosecc.org. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you're with the kids' class, you're dismissed this morning. And uh, if you need a copy of God's Word, just slip up your hand. Mr. Wayne's got extras that he's walking down the aisle now. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is where we will be. And we will begin in verse 12 here in just a moment. If you're new to St. Rose Community Church, we will invite you into a study that we started back in August. We're working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, it's our normal practice at the church just to work through entire books of the Bible, verse by verse, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, till we get through the whole thing. That helps us uh, not to skip anything. Uh, that helps us to uh, sort of submit ourselves under the authority of God's Word. And so we're going to be finishing up chapter 6 today, and then we'll take a small break uh, just for the season of Advent next Week we will start a series called Herald in Christ this Christmas where we'll be looking at uh, how the angels, how Mary herself, how uh, uh, many others responded to hearing the news of Jesus or understanding the news of Jesus' arrival. So uh, next week we'll begin some some Christmas themed sermons as we celebrate that Christ has been born. But for now uh, we're finishing out First Corinthians chapter. Six. Now, one of the beautiful things about expositional preaching is, is not only that uh, you get to hit every verse and every paragraph, is sometimes it lands on a paragraph uh, at a time that, yeah, maybe, maybe it's, it's not the most opportune time. Most preachers don't arrange uh, for Thanksgiving week to land on a text that talks about prostitution. So that is <laughs> where we are. <laughs> But we're going to be thankful for this text of Scripture, and, uh, and there's actually some really beautiful things uh, to be had here. And so let's look at 1 Corinthians 6 together, uh, beginning in verse 12, and then we're going to pause and pray for God to give us understanding. Verse 12. <clears throat> all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but... I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies? Are members of Christ. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee. From sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. 
for you were bought with a price. So, glorify God in your body. Let's, let's pray together. Father, you have sovereignly brought us to this paragraph in your inspired word for such a moment as this. And we pray that we would humble ourselves under the truth of this word for the edification of our souls, for our spiritual growth, and God, for your glory. Help us to obey this text for our good and for your glory. Father, stir our hearts to worship for the truths that are here, God. We, we, I ask, move me out of the way. Help me not to preach my own opinions, but to only speak what's been eternally true. We pray all these things by God's grace and for God's glory. In Jesus' name, amen. What we believe influences what we do. What we do reveals what we believe. And as usual, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20, is a moment in Scripture where Paul addresses both and how they are to relate to one another, what we believe and what we do. And there are some faulty beliefs that the Corinthians have embraced here, beliefs that have been expressed throughout the culture through slogans that would have been known to one another. What Paul does at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, is what he does, he, he quotes two common sort of cultural slogans that have led the Corinthians to embrace sin in the church. And then, and then he puts this argument together to sort of debunk those cultural slogans. So we're going to look at the slogans, we're going to look at his argument, and this is what we're going to do in the next 35 to 40 minutes. If you're a note taker and you like stu- writing stuff down that goes up on the screen, today's your day, all right? Because in the next 35 minutes, we're going to look at two falsehoods, four truths, three implications, and three takeaways. Let's go. First slogan, and you'll notice in your Bible the quotation marks here. All things are lawful for me, verse 12. He repeats it twice. All things are lawful for me. That phrase, lawful for me, is translated from a word closely identified to the word authority. It means freedom to act in accordance with one's own authority. Now, I actually like how the Christian Standard Bible translates this word a little bit better than the ESV. I think it brings a little more clarity. The Christian Standard Bible uh, translates it this way. Everything is permissible for me. The New International Version translates it with a little bit more punch. Uh, Verse 12 again. I have the right to do anything. That's the the sense of the phrase that gets repeated. Repeated, all things are lawful for me, all things are lawful for me. I have the right to do anything. Now, apparently this was a slogan that was popular in Corinth, and even in the Corinthian church, much like some hashtag would be popular today, or some slogan. I mean, back in the day, I don't know if it is now, like YOLO, you only live once. is something that you'd say before you did something stupid that might make you die faster, right? YOLO, you only live once. This is a, this is a type of slogan that Paul's quoting Back to the Corinthians. All things are permissible for me. All things are lawful for me. I can do whatever I want. And it's that misapplication of Christian freedom that Paul wants to address. And so here's the first falsehood we, we see. Christian freedom means freedom 
to rebel against God. That Christian freedom means freedom to rebel against God. It's the false belief that since I believe in Christ, I'm now totally free to ignore Christ. My forgiveness is a card-carrying license to sin. All I want without consequence in this life or the next. Christian freedom, however, is not a declaration that by faith I am freed to sin. Rather, the Christian freedom is by faith I'm now freed from the bondage of sin I used to want to do. The Corinthians say, everything's permissible for me. Paul says, not everything's helpful. Not everything's profitable or beneficial to you. The Corinthians say, everything is permissible for me. Paul says, I refuse to be dominated by anything. In other words, the Corinthians see sinful behavior as an act of their Christian freedom. I'm totally forgiven. I'm not going to hell. All the wrath of God has been taken on my behalf, which we would say yes and amen. They would take another step and say, which means I can sin all I want and there's no consequences. Which we would say, well, that's not necessarily how it works in this world, is it? The Corinthians see sinful behavior as an act of their freedom. Paul sees sin as an enslaving taskmaster that we were freed from, but to then plunge ourselves back into its slavery. For Paul to engage in sin, it's not an act of freedom, it's an act of enslavement. It's a submission to the cruel taskmaster that you have been freed from by God's grace. Much like I've said a couple weeks ago, it's, it's like... God freeing the Israelites from captivity in Egypt, saying, let's go to the promised land, and they decide to sit and hang out for a little while. Though they are not slaves to this place anymore, and they're saying, I'm free to stay in this land of oppression and death. Paul writes similarly in Romans 6, uh, what then are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? And he answers, by no means. Do you not know if you present yourselves to anyone as an obedient slave, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or obedience which leads to life. See, true Christian freedom, what we're free to do as Christians, is the freedom Christ gives us to find our joy in him and in his wisdom for our lives. So that slogan... I can do whatever I want. Paul responds, that's not helpful. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, second slogan. They say, food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. And God will destroy both one and the other. To which we would say after this Thanksgiving, amen. Right? We like that slogan. We agree with that slogan. Food is meant for the stomach. The slogan itself, though, is about human appetite in connection to meeting that bodily appetite by your action. So at least the first part of the slogan, it might have even been a slogan that Paul himself used in his explanation of why uh, you can now eat bacon, right? The, the dietary laws of the old covenant do not apply to the new Christians in the new covenant. But the Corinthians have taken the slogan and they've used it to propagate a falsehood, basically God doesn't care what I do with my body. It's physical. It's not spiritual. 
They've said, it doesn't matter what I eat. Hunger is just a bodily desire, and so we're free to satisfy that bodily desire. What we do with our bodies doesn't matter to God. They're just material things. They're going to be destroyed anyways. They're just tools for the satisfaction of our desires. And now here's where it gets really problematic. They take that concept even one step further. This is the leap they take. Just as we get hungry, we also have sexual desires... And we are freed to meet those desires any ways we please, the same way we are freed to eat what we please. And now how we know that, we can see that in the text. Because what Paul does, he says, this is what you're saying. Food's for the stomach. You know, eat what you want. And then Paul addresses it, which would seem odd if they weren't taking it this far. Look at verse 13. Food's meant for the stomach, the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. And then Paul responds, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So they have said, we can eat whatever we want, we can also sleep with whoever we want, because we're free in Christ. Falsehood number two, what we do with our physical bodies doesn't matter to God. That's a falsehood, not a truth. Make sure you put that at the beginning. Falsehood number two, what we do with our physical bodies doesn't matter to God. What follows now after that is this robust argument in which Paul is confronting these falsehoods, right? Christian freedom is not the freedom to just disobey God. What we do with our physical bodies very much matters to God. And and we in this room should very much listen to what Paul has to say here. Because the slogans may not take the exact grammatical form but we see them everywhere we look in American society. We see them everywhere we look when it comes to cultural understanding of sexuality and the sexual revolution. We're living in a sexual revolution which teaches explicitly human beings have total freedom to do whatever they want with their own bodies at no real cost to them. They can get surgery to change their gender to something that God did not make them to be at no cost to them or anyone else. They are freed to do what they want. We live in a culture which teaches that sex is only a physical transaction. It's not deeper than that. It's only a physical animal-like transaction in which people have desires satisfied. It's even being normalized among children. We live in a culture that says gender is fluid. Fluid, it's self-appointed construct. We're living in a world of false slogans. And so Paul aims to confront those with truth. So those are two falsehoods, four truths. Truth number one, God created our bodies for a purpose. So look at verse 13 again. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So what's being communicated here? Purpose. That we are physically embodied creatures on purpose. The God of the universe, when he made us bodily beings able to reproduce male and female, that that was design. It's, it's for something. 
We are male and female on purpose. We are a product of creative, purposeful design of God in relationship with each other, in relationship with God. We're made with the capacity for sexual intimacy, but we were not made for sexual immorality. We were not made to exercise that gift in a way contrary to what God designed it for. We were made for the Lord. That is, the body was created, my physical body was created to function as the vehicle in which I live and breathe and move throughout my life for the glory of the Lord who made it and for the good of this being he made. So what Paul does is he redirects our eyes to the one who truly does have the authority to instruct us on what we should do with these bodies that we have. The designer, creator of these bodies has some good ideas about how we should be using them and how we should not be using them. So in verse 16, Paul even goes as far as to quote Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And what he's doing, he's articulating that not only are our bodies created for a purpose, but sexuality itself was created for a purpose. That maleness and femaleness are part of God's design. Sex is a part of God's design. He created these things to operate in a certain way, in a particular context. And so there's a way to express it in a way that exalts God. And there's a way to entertain it in a way that dishonors God. And God very much cares about the things which he so masterfully and lovingly created. But it's not just that God is the founder of our physical bodies. That gives him the right and authority to tell us what we should use these bodies for alone. But he's not just the founder. That's not the message of Christianity. It's not just that God designed us and created us for a purpose. We shouldn't deviate from that. The gospel message is that we did deviate from that, and then God decided to redeem these bodies that we started screwing up. That he is not just creator, he's redeemer of our physical bodies. So it is no secret in the room that we are tempted to misuse our bodies. And it's no secret that our bodies are deteriorating on their own in this broken world right now. Our physical bodies in a broken world are sin-stricken. They do not operate according to original design. My back does not operate uh, according to original design. Many of your knees do not, right? operate according to original design. They are corrupted and are corrupting. The curse of sin and death means that our bodies are always sort of in a state of dying right now. We are always experiencing in our bodies the curse of sins. And the Corinthians respond to that saying, yeah, we agree. So let's just do whatever we want with them. Who cares what we do with our bodies? They're dying, material things. They have no spiritual value at all. So let's just enjoy them while we can. And Paul argues with a much better story. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, he says, And God raised the Lord, and he will also raise us up by his power. Truth number two, God will raise our bodies by his power. We humans are embodied beings. We're trapped in these dying bodies, doomed to be separated from God, from, from life eternal. The message of the gospel is, but God, isn't it? God the Son takes on a human body 
Next week, we begin to celebrate Christmas together, the season where we remember that part of the story, that, that God took on human body, he takes on flesh, experiences then all the temptations we experience in a human body, it experiences then the tearing apart of his body, the breaking down of his body, the physical death of his body, and then, by the power of God, the resurrection of that body. Christ's physical body rises again. He overcomes sin, death, and the curse. His physical body raises to eternal life, the same eternal life that he now offers to anyone who will believe in him. Of course God cares about our physical bodies. He's got plans for them. Eternal plans for them to make them whole again and new again. And every ounce of your sexual brokenness will be undone in the new heavens and the earth. When you look at Jesus face to face, you will have a glorified body resurrected again. You realize that heaven is not some sort of um, theoretic sort of floating on clouds with strange babies with wings. Like what we're promised, right, is a, an existence, an embodied existence. Our bodies will raise again and we will live in a new earth. Where there is no pain, no aches, no sexual temptation contrary to the design of God. We will forever be embodied beings living in God's world, God's way, with perfect bodies, fully and finally able to live according to God's good, good design. Now, now, that aspect of the gospel that you're promised a new body, the value of that increases as you age, does it not? <laughs> You feel it. The longing for that future reality intensifies as you age. Listen, if you're in this room and you hurt all the time, persevere. Because the promise of Christ is that one day you will not. You will run and jump and leap and walk and see perfectly. We look forward to a remade world with resurrected bodies where we enjoy life as God has designed forever and ever. Now, the reader might say, well, yeah, but he's going to do all that regardless of what I do with my body here and now, right? I mean, that's great. That's a future reality. That tells me God cares about my body, but is he not going to undo any bad things I do to it now? Still, why not live it up? In all the ways here in the here and now. Well, Paul's not done. Look at verse 15. Verse 15, Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them a members of a prostitute? Never. Or, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. But he who's joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality for every other sin and a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And then verse 19, he says, Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Truth number three. Now we're going to come back and we're going to talk specifically about implications for sexual sin, but I just want you to see first the truths about our relationship with God here. Truth three, God united our bodies to Christ by the Spirit. God united our bodies to Christ by the Spirit. The relationship that God invites you into when you trust Jesus is far more profound than you may realize. 
Something happened to you when you put faith in Christ. Something is offered to you if you have not yet put faith in Christ. Something's offered to you that is includes forgiveness of sin, but it's even more than that. It's beyond that. There's grace upon grace that's offered to you in relationship with Jesus. What he offers you is to be profoundly united to Jesus in an unbreakable, unchangeable, eternal way. So much so that Paul's able to say, you as an individual, you are like a member of Christ himself. We are a part of him, and he is a part of us in an unbreakable relational covenant, stronger than the attachment of my arm to my body, stronger than any marriage or any marriage vows, which we are prone to break. Marriages on earth and even sexual intimacy within those covenant marriages are only a shadow and symbol of the spiritual union that happens when you put faith in Jesus. God joins to you in a way that cannot be unjoined. Look at verse 17. Do you hear the the, the analogy he's trying to make? He who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. There's a oneness with God that you are offered as a Christian in which the only earthly parallel that Paul can use here is the physical, emotional, spiritual union that takes place between a man and a woman in the context of the covenant promises of marriage made to one another. God's Spirit changes us, empowers us, joins us, indwells us so that we are one with Him in a way that is profoundly deep, deep Deeper than we can imagine. And we get married. What's often said is, is the quotation of Jesus. What God's put together, let no man separate. That's talking about marriage. But here's the mystery. It's also Christ and the church. And here's the reality. What God has put together, no man can separate. Your unity with Jesus. Forever. And Paul, as he contemplates this, he uses the analogy of the physical body and he shifts analogies to say, much like the physical temple in the Old Testament, we we become as Christians, what you are when you put faith in Jesus, you become a, a walking, breathing, living temple where the Spirit of God dwells and makes His glory known. Look at verse 19. Do you not know your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. And that means many things for us, doesn't it? God's Spirit empowers us to do His will, empowers us to spread His message, to fight sin, to pray, to understand the Word, to have courage, to endure suffering, to persevere with faith through trial and tribulation. Christians become these walking, talking miracles in progress of becoming more like Jesus every day because we've been united to Jesus in an unbreakable way. The Spirit has changed us and is changing us as we walk in relationship with God. Christian, what's offered to you in the gospel is that you might be forgiven by a holy God. What's offered to you in the gospel is that you might be known and know a holy God. What you do with your bodies matters because through faith in Jesus, he takes up residence in us. Without faith in Christ, that's not your experience. 
Without Christ's blood for you, you could not become the temple of God. Without Christ, we've given our bodies and souls and minds to another. We lived in a kind, the Bible will say, a spiritual adultery. And it really, what sin is, is a selling of ourselves into a spiritual prostitution to someone who is not our betrothed. An enslavement of sorts to a taskmaster. And what Paul does, he builds off that analogy for one more theological truth about our physical selves. Look at verse 19 and 20 again. Or verse 20, rather. He says, You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Truth number four, God purchased us with the blood of Christ. Sin caused us all to owe a great debt, a debt that was paid by Jesus. Jesus bought us with a price. Jesus did what God told Hosea to do. If you know your Old Testament kind of history, maybe you're familiar with the story of Hosea, a prophet whom God told to marry a prostitute who would cheat on him and sell herself to another man. And when she does... Rather than do what everyone in this room would want to do, which is say to good riddance, I'm never talking to that woman again, God tells Hosea to go buy her back Amen. that she might be his wife again. Hosea chapter 3, 1, God tells Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods. And what God does is he promises that this is what he's going to do. He's going to purchase back a people who are committing a spiritual adultery. Hosea chapter 2, verse 19, he says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. I'll betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 23, he says, I will sow her for myself in the land. I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. You realize that what Christ did on the cross was he came and purchased a spiritual adulterer like you. That you might remain with him forever. And the payment he paid was his own blood in your place. And the end toward which the world progresses is a final day where we're united to our betrothed. We're united forever with the one who purchased us back out of this hellish race that we were on. And we get to walk the aisles of sorts in Revelation 21 and see the one who has paid the price for us. And here's the end toward which the whole Bible is leading us toward. That behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away the first song in the catechism that we sing with our kids at night before bed the one that they probably know best because of the first one we did it asks a question and then they're supposed to give an answer so here's the question what is our only hope in life and death the answer is that we are not our own, but we belong to God. And that, my friends, is a good thing. Belonging to God is where we belong. His words, His ways are for our good, even when they confront what our sinful bodies desire. 
It is good to belong to the Lord who wants what's best for you. Even when he says what's best for you is not what you think is best for you. Two falsehoods. Christian freedom is freedom to disobey God. Number one. Number two, what we do with our bodies doesn't matter to God. Four truths. God created our bodies for a purpose. He'll raise our bodies by his power. He's united our bodies to Christ by the Spirit. He's purchased our bodies by his blood. Now, all that is beautiful and glorious and good, and it's enough to make us worship right now. But he's not only teaching a systematic theology about our bodies, is he? Why is he doing this? Why is he unfolding these true things? Because he wants you to do something with this information. Or rather, not do something with this information. Right? He aims to cause the theology of Christianity to land on sinful hearts that we might live in accordance with what we say we believe. Right? If all those things are true of me, then it's going to change my decision on that Friday night by myself on what I look at on my computer screen. What I do with my body. These truths come to bear on, on my being because if that's true, this isn't good for me. What he's, what he's doing is, is he's wanting their doctrine to lead and empower their living. Because that is the way of Christianity. From faith flows obedience. So now let me briefly turn our attention to three implications for sexual sin that Paul draws out as he makes the argument. And we're going to roll quick now, okay? Implication number one, sexual immorality is a sin against God. It's not meant for sexual immorality. And the argument is pretty crazy in verse 5, isn't it? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I take the members of Christ and make them a, a members of a prostitute? Never. I mean, this is disturbing, Paul. The imagery is disturbing and outlandish and purposely so. What he's saying, he's assuming if you're a Christian, you love Jesus. And you believe that Jesus united himself to you. How in the world would you unite Jesus to somebody else in that way? It's a strange analogy, it's an outlandish analogy, but it's meant to be intense to try to land on the reader. And just like chapter 5, he's assuming that if you're a Christian, you love Christ, you care for the purity of the name of Christ. And so he makes this point, if you claim to be united to Jesus and you enter into a sexually immoral relationship with a prostitute, what you do is you take the name of the Jesus you say you love into that filthiness. And he asks the question, Expecting a strong negative. Would you do that? Would you join Jesus to a prostitute? The answer, no. I should not want to do that. Should we not be comfortable doing that? And if I do do that, I would feel the remorse of sinning against the Jesus I love. Implication number one, sexual immorality is a sin against God. Implication number two, sexual immorality is a sin against another person. In verse 16, he says, Do you not know that he who joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it's written, the two will become one flesh. And just, I just want you to note here for a second, because we're not good at thinking in these terms. Note how serious Paul understands the connection between two individuals who are intimate in this way. This is not a physical transaction. Something more than physical happens in this act, either for the good of the two individuals or for the destruction of the two individuals. Not only do you harm your soul, you invite harm to the soul of another person. 
Sexual sin is never isolated, just like sin is never isolated. It always goes farther than you ever wanted it to go. And the sexual oneness was made to create a oneness between a husband and a wife that cannot be separated. It's, it's made to make two people one, not just physically, but emotionally and mentally and spiritually. And so sexual immorality, was it, what it does, it, it, it creates that oneness and then it severs that oneness. And there's a kind of spiritual tearing of the soul that happens when someone joins their body to another who's not their husband and not their wife over and over again. Both parties suffer deep harm. Implication number three, sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Verse 18, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but this one, it's a sin against your own body. The warning's clear, right? It's not good for you. It harms you. Spiritually and emotionally and mentally and physically, this kind of sin is not good for your body. It's destructive, and God prohibits it not because he doesn't value your desires or your happiness or your good. He prohibits it because he does value you. He made you. He died for you. He rose again for you. He's made promises to you. He wants your good and his glory. One of the key things we do is we disciple people. Church, as we, as we sit across the table with people suffering and, and sexual brokenness and making decisions that, that are contrary to what they believe to be true, one of, the con- one of the things we do is we sit across the table and we have to convince them, listen, God's word for you is good. In fact, it's better than this thing you think you want. We were in class this morning and John chapter 4 was referenced about the woman at the well who's on her fifth husband looking for something and Christ offers her living water in relationship with him. He says all, it basically says to her, all the things you've pursued, they've not worked. And I'm offering you the one thing which brings fulfillment that your soul's actually longing for. So stop tearing your soul apart with one man after the next. So where does all this leave us, right? Three implications now, three takeaways. Takeaway number one, what do we do with this? Well, we flee sexual immorality. <laughs> That's the command here, verse 18. Flee sexual immorality. That's the, the charge of the text. This is what it's wanting you to do. Run from it. Don't entertain it. Don't make excuses for it. Don't befriend it. Don't ignore it. Don't accept it. Oh, I'm just a broken person. It's just the way I am. That's not the sort of temperament that God would have you have with the thing which attempts to destroy you. You have one wise option, according to Scripture, when it comes to sexual immorality of all kinds. Run. With all you have and all that's in you for your own good and the good of others and the glory of God, run. Takeaway number two, glorify God in your body. So run from what is evil, but don't just run away from things. It doesn't work. It doesn't work to disciple someone and say, sexual morality, bad, don't do it. Finish sentence. You have to follow that up. Run from sexual morality, bad. Run toward God's purposes for you. Very good. (laughs) 
Glorify God with everything He's given you, right? You were put on the earth to display the living God. You were put in this body to live and breathe and walk and enjoy and, and to, to experience the world in worship. Your purpose is to know God and be known by God and make God known to everybody else who doesn't know God. It's better than whatever little purpose you have created for yourself, which includes sexual intimacy with somebody. Run from sexual immorality, run toward God's purposes for your life, and then take away number three, trust the incarnate Jesus whose perfect body died and resurrected. The message of the gospel is that even though you have failed to flee sexual immorality, perhaps even this week, and you have failed to glorify God in your body, and you feel very much broken, the message of the gospel is that there is one who very much succeeded. Jesus lived a human life in a human body, experienced temptation to the fullest, yet there was not a single moment where Christ failed to glorify God with His body. There was not a moment where Jesus entertained a sexually immoral thought to his own sinful pleasure. And he lived as a human man in this world. And according to the Bible, as a human man, fleeing from sexual immorality perfectly, his perfection, his righteousness, his purity, his victory over sin and death is totally and freely credited to you if you trust Him. You get that? Like you, you stand in front of God as if you never entertained a sexually immoral thought for a split second. You stand before God as if that's true of you because Christ did it for you. Praise God that the Bible tells us there's a better way to experience sexuality in this world, but praise God that, that in all of our brokenness and failure to meet that better way, there is somebody who did it. And not just did it so we can say, look, cool, somebody who did it and then credited to us all of it. All of his obedience and righteousness. The gospel is twofold, right? That at the cross, Jesus takes all of the punishment that I deserved for my sin. But in his life, in his death and his resurrection, Jesus credits to me all of the righteousness that he lived in his life. So if you're here this morning, you need to hear these two realities, right? The Bible is calling you, run from sexual morality with everything you have. Trust in the one who did that perfectly when you fail. And that's the way that we experience all the promises where our body is made new again and we dwell with God forever. So let's, I know there's a lot. Let's pray. Let's meditate. How does the Lord want to speak to us from this text? Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, I just recognize there's not a person in this room who has lived a perfect life when it comes to sexual immorality of all kinds. So we come to you as sinners this morning pleading for your help. 
we ask that you help us to be what you have created us to be and what you've promised we will be. God, we pray a prayer of thanksgiving this morning. This is not a thanksgiving uh, thematic sermon, but there's a lot to be thankful for here. And so, Father, help us to rejoice in in things that we see in this text. Help us to live in light of the things we rejoice in. We pray all these things by your grace and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.